0: Thank you. potential and possibility discussions with fascinating people designing a better tomorrow for all of us. I'm your host, Ira Pastor. Welcome everybody again to another episode of our show bringing you another really fascinating guest today who has been involved in, in creating a better tomorrow throughout her career. Uh, today we have the honor of being joined by Dr. Peggy Hamburg, uh, internationally recognized leader in both public health and medicine, who currently serves as the chair of the Nuclear Threat Initiative's Bioadvisory group, Uh, where she's also served as the founding VP and senior scientist. And she also currently holds a role as commissioner on the Bipartisan Commission on Biodefense. Uh, Dr. Hamburg previously served as Foreign Secretary of the National Academy of Medicine and as a former Commissioner of the United States Food and Drug Administration, uh, having served for uh, almost six years, where she was extremely well known for helping to advance regulatory sciences, modernize various regulatory pathways, and help globalize the agency. Prior to that, served positions including Assistant Secretary for Planning and Evaluation uh, at the Department of Human Health, Health and Human Services, as Health Commissioner of New York City and also uh, assistant director of the National Institutes of Health, National Institute of Allergies and Infectious Diseases. Uh, Dr. Hamburg currently sits on multiple boards, including the Commonwealth Fund, the Simons Foundation, uh, the Urban Institute, uh, Gavi, the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunizations, uh, as well as a variety of others. Um, Dr. Hamburg uh, earned her bachelor's from Harvard College, her medical degree from Harvard Medical School, and completed her medical residency at Wheel Cornell Medical Center, and she is the recipient of multiple Honorary degrees and numerous awards. We're honored to have her with us today, uh, Dr. Peggy Hamburg. Thank you so much for joining us on the show.
1: Well, thank you for inviting me.
0: It's it's great to have you. I, I, I'd like to start off, I think, um, about 20 or so years ago uh, when you were uh, the commissioner of the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene because at that time in addition to everything you were doing in terms of uh, helping reduce hiv transmission and and dealing with sort of a resurgence in the spread of tuberculosis you started publishing several papers at that time on biosecurity and bioterrorism uh things titles like uh, hemorrhagic fever viruses as biologic weapons sars and implications for u.s public health policy we've been lucky um Talk a little bit about what was happening a couple decades ago and, and what sort of got this theme, which ultimately will feed into our discussion at NTI, uh, about your concerns in terms of bioterrorism.
1: Yeah, well, really, I had not thought about biological threats in the broadest sense until I was health commissioner in New York City. I'd been very focused on infectious disease, had worked, as you noted, at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, and, of course, as New York City health commissioner, I was dealing you know, with a lot of infectious disease um, concerns from, uh, you know, really it was a period when HIV was really um, uh, becoming pronounced, the resurgence of tuberculosis and now in a more deadly form of drug resistant. There was uh, the emergence of some unexpected diseases in New York City, thanks to uh, travel and trade um, and, um, you know, a set of ongoing infectious disease concerns, but I'd never thought about the deliberate use of a biological weapon to do harm in any serious way. Um, but when I was health commissioner, the World Trade Center was bombed for the first time. And we should always forget about that. But for me, that was a wake-up call that the threat of domestic terrorism was quite real. And as the chief health officer for New York City, um, I needed to, to really think in some new ways. And I started um, thinking about all the vulnerabilities that could impact health. And, of course, bioterrorism uh, was one. I started to learn more about uh, the history of biological weapons, and um, and that included, of course, the state-sponsored use, but also the possibility of um, a subnational group, Um, or even just a rogue bad guy. Mm -hmm. I had the great opportunity also, I have to say, to learn um, uh, at the side of Dr. Joshua Lederberg, who was quite a revered um, and renowned figure in, you know, the world of, of infectious diseases and microbiology, but also a leading thinker on deliberate use of biological agents to do harm. And he was at Rockefeller University. And so, you know, we worked together a lot. We ultimately were able to publish together and to um, serve as the co-chairs of an important committee uh, at the National Academy of Medicine, then the Institute of Medicine called Microbial Threats in the 21st Century. Um, but, um, But that was really how my interest emerged. And I have to say at the time, there was only a very small group of us who were seriously engaged from a public health um, preparedness and response perspective in um, the bioweapons, bioterrorism area. And many of my colleagues um, in the infectious disease arena and public health, you know, really sort of were concerned that I was going a little bit off the deep end, um, but I think you know the events of later years you know demonstrated that we we do need to have this broad approach, and I think we we need to continue to keep a strong focus on on bio threats in all their many dimensions, including um, you know more attention to issues around biosecurity and biosafety.
0: Yeah, in the uh, NNTI just recently, um, you published uh, this uh, this paper uh, establishing a joint assessment mechanism for enhanced biosafety and security, um, you know, talking in it about sort of biologic events of unknown origin. And, and you point out, okay, we have all these situations, we you know, overpopulation, uh, destruction of the environment that serve very well for zoonotic issues um and on the other hand uh, you know you go into the fact that yeah, we have one thing about it, we have these 60 maximum security biosafety for laboratories all around the world we got to make sure they're operating pretty well so we don't have accidents talk a little bit about sort of, some of what you do on a daily basis right you think about these horrible problems at nti but uh, take us into that if you would
1: well you know On a a day-to-day basis, you know, I'm trying to focus on things that can be done that can make a difference in the present but also planning for the future and trying to do that in a way that is as, you know, sort of streamlined um, and likely to be um, effective and doable as possible. And so a lot of that is really thinking about um, building out capacity in this country and around the world. For you know, basic public health functions um, that will protect the health of people and prevent uh, disease, including of course you know uh, communicable diseases of, of all kinds, but also systems to rapidly recognize the emergence of an unexpected um, disease outbreak that could signal worse uh, to come. I. I really do think that we need to to strengthen and extend, you know, core public health and its relationship to our healthcare system, uh, on a day to day basis to be, you know, prepared to surge should, you know, we face a serious uh, disease epidemic or another global um, pandemic. And I think COVID nineteen has has certainly shown a spotlight on the deficiencies in our current capacities, whether it's um you know in the United States, which clearly, you know, should have been much better equipped um, in its and uh effective in its response to COVID than it in fact was. But many countries, you know, really don't have the kinds of resources um and capacities that we've had in this country over time, um, inadequate as they may Still be sadly, but I yeah. um, and we need to we need to work on that. And then, you know, I do think it's really important to continue to educate the public and policymakers about these issues. And we we saw during COVID how important that was, and that the the public's lack of of a full understanding of what we were addressing um, and how it needed to be addressed certainly um, uh, I think was unhelpful. To the overall response, and certainly failures of leadership, you know, were very undermining, and we're we're digging out from a situation where the the public has lost confidence in many of its important public health and political leaders and institutions. And then, you know, lastly, with respect to biosecurity, I think we still are not putting enough attention on biosecurity and biosafety issues per se. Mm-hmm and and that becomes even more important now i think that you know the the threat landscape has shifted with covid in a number of ways that you know may increase the likelihood of either a deliberate or inadvertent um uh laboratory related um uh bio uh event mm-hmm. uh You know, we we know, of course, having watched COVID unfold and its far reaching impacts that a biological event can be catastrophic, can be devastating to health, but also to economies and and livelihoods and and to safety and security of populations. And of course, you know, to political uh, leadership (laughs) as well. and so that might make the deliberate use of a biological agent more tempting to some groups, but but more than that, I think we have to be realistic that the very advances in scientific research that will help to yield better understanding of of um, microbial threats, um, yeah. uh, and the very uh studies that are 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 done to help us develop. Better countermeasures, diagnostics, drugs, vaccines, um, to address potential biological threats also may make us more vulnerable. Mm-hmm. They may, it may mean that we're doing studies that are are sort of almost like roadmaps to how do you make a virus um, more lethal or mm-hmm. more transmissible, or um, more and more countries want to be doing research on pathogens of pandemic potential, but they may not have the kind of biosafety, biosecurity labs and, and regimes to do that work in the safest way possible. So I think this is a time when not only do we need to be strengthening our public health institutions, but we also need to be providing responsible stewardship of the the critical, valuable tools of modern science and technology to address these threats, but, but you know, really making sure that that, that work is done uh, in appropriate ways with the right oversight and sense of accountability.
0: Outstanding. Maggie, um, moving to your... Um your leadership at at FDA, because you you were known for many things uh, during your time there in terms of advancing and streamlining and modernizing the agency, uh, Food Safety Modernization Act, Family Smoking Prevention and Tobacco Control Act. You you, you did a lot of major initiatives. And, and, you know, know, on one hand, you know, you have, as commissioner, you have these amazing responsibilities to guarantee our drugs are, are safe and efficacious, that we don't have uh, adulterated foods and misbranded consumer products and so forth. On the other hand, you know, you you wrote a bunch of papers on topics like personalized medicine, nanotechnology, just generally advancing regulatory sciences while not stifling innovation. And, you know, I think um, I said the public's been granted sort of this Uh, interesting case in the last couple of years in terms of the COVID vaccines and uh, and emergency use of of how fast innovation technically can happen. Um, Talk a little bit about sort of this balance that you have to keep, you know, as commissioner that you had to keep in mind at the time that, you you got to protect the public, but you you got to make sure that innovation happens at the same time.
1: Well, it is, you know, a fundamental challenge of, of the FDA and, um, advancing biomedical product innovation, balancing risks and benefits, um, and trying to do um, that work in the most streamlined way possible, um, but avoiding any um, uh, unfortunate uh, harm to people that would not only um, be an acute problem, but could also undermine confidence Going forward with a vaccine, you mentioned the COVID vaccines. That was an extraordinary effort to advance um, uh, the science of, of the development of a, a novel vaccine technology with the mRNA vaccines um, in a remarkable time frame. FDA and other regulatory authorities provided incredible leadership from the get-go. You know, really thinking about how can we structure clinical trials for these vaccines in ways that can compress some of the time frame and telescope some of the, the, the pieces of the, the research needed to assess safety and efficacy, but without compromising rigorous science. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that was very, very important. The process went forward with more risk in terms of financial risk and risk of failure. Um, but there was a concerted effort that was adhered to, to ensure that we actually collected the data to know whether these vaccines uh, were were safe and if they were effective. And I think that really mattered, not only because it doesn't do you any good in a pandemic, if you're using a vaccine that doesn't really work. You know, sometimes There is a sense of something is going to be better than nothing. So just get it out to people as fast as you can. But the worst thing you can do, in my view, is to put something out there that people think is going to work and then it doesn't work or uh, worse yet, doesn't work and it causes harm. Because, of course, with vaccines, you're giving a product to people who are healthy to try to keep them healthy. Um, And so you, you certainly don't want to introduce unnecessary safety risks as well. But more than ensuring that we had products that would really work and that we understood about how to use them, um, I think that this very rigorous adherence to good science, even as timeframes were accelerated in historic ways um, was very important because already we were introducing these vaccines against a backdrop of incredible uncertainty and and you know, skepticism, existing vaccine um hesitancy and the anti-vax movement, which has been undermining confidence in vaccines and update uptake of vaccines um, in ways that belie um the science and what's best um uh for children and adults and families from a health perspective, but in the context of a pandemic, become even more. Uh, pressing. So we were up against that. And then, you know, understandably, in the kind of raucous political environment and divisive um, political environment that COVID was unfolding in as well. um, uh, And the fact that everyone knew we were moving in this accelerated way. And I think naming the vaccine project in the US, Operation Warp Speed probably didn't help because people (laughs) felt that the process was moving forward in unnatural ways, Um, you know, really being able to speak to the rigor of the science, to be able to be open about the data, to bring in um, independent scientists um, for review of the studies and um, in the advisory committee meetings, I think all um, helped to support um, the assessment of the vaccines and, um, and their uptake.
0: Can you say a couple of words about, um, you know, you wrote this paper with um, six other former commissioners, the FDA, talking about, you know, the recommendation of FDA sort of coming out of HHS and being it's sort of independent, reconfigured federal agency. Um, Just say a couple of words about why and and how you got together to write this. And then at the same time, um, this is sort of a second part of this, my FDA regulatory stuff here, Um, food. Um, We... Food has changed a lot uh, over the years. And obviously, you know, before 1906, the uh, Department of Agriculture and then FDA's responsibilities. Is food still something that you think should be a responsibility of FDA versus a- another type of agency that would think about things as broad as, you know, uh you know the safety of our, our of our pepperoni, uh, and on the, on the other hand, the area you know, stem cell derived food. So it, you know there's, it, there's food falls into a lot of categories nowadays. <laughs> um, well,
1: one thing you know that's very striking about the FDA, and to be honest, I didn't fully appreciate until I was the commissioner, is just how broad yeah. and deep the responsibilities are in all the different areas um, of um, food product. I mean, of um, of products that Americans consume. Uh, FDA actually regulates. You know, it's it's almost twenty five cents of every dollar that consumers spend on products yeah. um, is regulated by the FDA. Um, in addition to that, you know, the 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 range of domains of 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 science and technology that underlie many of these products and their appropriate regulatory oversight. So. FDA is an amazing agency in terms of the depth and breadth of its its responsibility, and the you know the importance of having a really expert and dedicated um, uh, staff. Um, you know the focus on foods is an important and timely one. Uh, if you go back, you noted that FDA was created in 1906. It was actually um, President Teddy Roosevelt that created the FDA. Um, mm-hmm. And it was in response to a number of food safety concerns as well as as some issues about fraudulent um, medications yeah. um, But from the very beginning, FDA you know really has had a very strong food focus um, and um, and it remains today uh in terms of its budget part of the it's a the budget committee is a subcommittee of the the agriculture. Um, committee. So it still is very embedded in that world, but so much of its work is, is not in the food area. The food area to be Frank hasn't been as well funded or supported or understood for a very long time. And I think, you know, that has been unfortunate FDA doesn't regulate all food in the United States. Um, I think it's about 80%, but it doesn't regulate um, meat. When you mentioned pepperoni um, uh, or, um, or eggs, um, but it, it it regulates a you know a huge um, swath of, of food. And when I was commissioner, it was the first time that really the, the the food safety program was was really modernized in about sixty years. And implementing that um, new regulation um, uh, that was the result of a bipartisan uh, bill um, uh, was something that was was a high priority for me. And uh you know, I think that unfortunately some of that important work got a little bit stalled um with transitions in leadership as well as of course COVID and the funding, as I think I mentioned already for the food and nutrition component of FDA has always been less than yeah. on the drug side and the the medical product side, drugs and devices, um, you know, have special um, sort of contractual relationships with industry um, with strong firewalls but industry helps to support some of the work because it's in their best interest for adequate staffing um, facilities etc in terms of getting products approved we haven't had that same kind of support on on the food side but you know, I I think that many of the same kinds of thinking, the same kind of um, data-driven decision-making, the assessments of risks and benefits, um, and the efforts to try to um, provide appropriate uh, oversight in a rapidly changing environment, um, fits with other responsibilities of FDA and other domains. And, you know, maybe I'm just a little old fashioned, but I, I kind of like the idea of, of seeing it remain the food and drug administration. It's partly, you know, the legacy and the tradition, mm-hmm. but I think if that's going to happen, it needs to be adequately supported. It needs strong leadership. It needs, you know, ongoing attention day to day, as well as thinking about the strategic future. And, um, and I think, you know, this is a time of reckoning for the FDA in terms of how best to approach it. You can argue, why not bring together the food safety components that are in agriculture, mm-hmm. the food uh, safety, you know, outbreak investigation capacities that are with CDC as well as with FDA and sort of create a more unified whole in that regard. But there are important synergies within each of those agencies of these programs. Um, you know, that would be diminished. There's also very different legal regulatory um, requirements um, that would have to be modified. So it would take, to to change it, it would take, you know, a lot of work. (laughs) Maybe it's the right thing to do going forward, but I would say let's not do it on the spur of the moment because the political winds are shifting or whatever. Let's do it in a serious, thoughtful, stepwise way so that if we reconfigure, we do it in a way that really, um, you know, is most appropriate and will better position uh, the agency for the future. Just one other footnote to an already overly long answer. But, you know, another thing that's happening in the, the food and nutrition area, though, is that there is a growing sort of overlap between medical products and um, certain food nutrition products, yep. and you know, and that probably really does belong with the FDA. The whole sort of area of nutraceuticals, etc. Um, so, you know, I think this is a discussion that's ongoing and will continue to be had. But I, my, my greatest message is, you know, let's do it in a thoughtful way that really allows us to get all of the issues on the table. Um, and think them through before mm-hmm. we start to make uh, changes. And that then leads into your other question, if you still want me to address that, about whether it could be an independent agency. And I, and I think the answer to that remains yes, and I think COVID has um, reminded us of many reasons why that should happen. Um, you know, FDA is a regulatory agency that has very unique responsibilities and huge responsibilities, as I mentioned, in terms of the oversight of products that really matter to people every day and in a crisis. Um, Other regulatory agencies that have similarities with FDA, like the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, or the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, or the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, are independent regulatory agencies. And in fact, the Consumer Safety Agency spun out of FDA, and it's an independent agency but um but FDA is not, and I think you know that harms its ability to um fully do its task um it harms its ability to um, be as efficient as possible, and I think you know it can undermine um both perception and reality of of independent decision making from other vested interests um you know, I think you can really track. It's not, it's really, this isn't a partisan issue. It's not, you know, the the Republicans are bad or the Democrats are bad in terms of political interference into the work of FDA. I think it's just a fact of life that when FDA is embedded in an agency the way it is, that it becomes more complicated. Um, and I think the modern world has made it all more complicated. And I think you can sort of track going back you know, quite a number of administrations, quite a number of decades, and, uh, and FDA has become, I think, more and more politicized as, you know, the world of social media and 24 hour cable and the sort of intensity and divisiveness of politics has shifted. I think, you know, there's more and more, um, intrusion, um, of, of, political decision makers into some of the work of FDA. And I think that reflects the fact that FDA every day is making really important decisions and making important decisions that, um, you know, very often someone is unhappy about, whether it's industry and, you know, they see dollar signs if a product isn't approved or um, people who are looking to FDA to get access to drugs they need or, or you know, want to uh make sure that the infant formula they're feeding their kids is safe um you know there's a lot of stuff that gets in the news and you know the white house doesn't always like that in Mm. fact at one point i was told during my tenure at the fda by someone in the white house at a fairly high level why can't you be more boring at the fda (laughs) But, you know, certainly I experienced some episodes um, that were very uncomfortable to me as FDA commissioner. I know colleagues um, at FDA before me and colleagues afterwards, you know, similarly had concerns.
0: Got it. Got it. Um, Peggy, as, as I mentioned in uh, the bio at the beginning of the show, you you also served as uh, Foreign Secretary for the National Academies of Medicine. and. In 2017, in, in JAMA, uh, you, Victor Zhao, and others published uh, a paper entitled "Vital Directions for Health and Healthcare Priorities" from the the National of Medicine uh, Initiative. Um, Add Victor on about a year and a half ago an episode talking about uh one topic the um the national academy's healthy longevity grand challenge and and this is clearly a a component of this paper in terms of the the aging of the of the global population um i could just wonder if you could say a few words about uh the healthy longevity initiative per what you experienced as foreign secretary uh from a global perspective and then also Second part of that, coming back to FDA now, one of the things I hear from people working in the in the healthy longevity domain is this uh sort of this lamentation that FDA doesn't recognize aging as a disease today and that hinders stuff. Um, I'd just love to get your thought on sort of that concept, whether you think aging is or should not be uh classified as a, a disease or sort of development of some of these health span therapeutics that are coming down the pipeline.
1: Okay. Well, you know, starting very broad and then getting, you know, more narrowed in on the aging question. I mean, I think, you know, almost all of the major challenges in in science, medicine and health today, as well as all of the broader challenges facing our globe, you know, really do require um, uh, responses and strategies that, um, you know, not only cut across disciplines and sectors, but cut across borders and really the best work and the best solutions are going to be found by working collaboratively. And that was actually something I felt strongly about when I got to the FDA, in part because I, I realized that the products we were regulating, whether in the medical product sphere or in you know the food domain or other areas, the products were actually being, um, were coming either in whole or in part from countries around the world and through complicated supply chains. um, And that if I was simply gonna define my job as protecting and promoting the health of the American people, I needed to care about what was going on in countries around the world. And that no matter how well resourced we were, we were never gonna be able to inspect every um, factory and um, packaging plant. We weren't going to be able to trace all of these products through these complex supply chains. Uh, And so my feeling was that we needed to work with other regulatory authorities. We needed to help strengthen regulatory capacity in other parts of the world. Um, And we needed to share information, both information about products and potentially emerging concerns, et cetera, but also um, share workload. I mean, uh you know if if many countries are getting products that are coming from a certain um uh manufacturing facility in India or China or wherever um we don't all have to go in and do separate inspections. Mm-hmm. we can share information if we have common standards and practices and so I worked a lot on that and actually was part of helping to create a new global governance mechanism that proved very, very useful. During COVID, but um, you know, my I came into the FDA having strong interests and having done work in in global health, and that you know continued at FDA and and has certainly been reinforced by my work as foreign secretary at the National Academy of Medicine. Actually, I just took on a new role for better or for worse as co president of an organization called the Inter Academy Partnership for Science, Health, and Policy, mm-hmm. which is an umbrella organization for academies of science and medicine and engineering around the world. Um, You know, so obviously reinforcing this sort of global approach to problems. Um, And, you know, the problem of aging is certainly one where there is no society anywhere in the world that is completely immune (laughs) to the process of aging. There certainly are some groups that seem to do remarkably well in terms of aging compared to others, but aging is a natural process. It's embedded in, you know, I think all of our bodies and our cells, um, in our genetic makeup. And so, in that sense, I think aging doesn't have to always be framed as a disease. It's it's a natural process. But there are many diseases of mm-hmm. aging, and many of the diseases of aging have very meaningful opportunities for interventions that can slow that aging process or make that aging process less debilitating. You know, there are some people who believe that perhaps we can stop aging altogether. You know, for me, I don't think that, I don't think we're ever gonna find the fountain of youth, but I might be wrong. (laughs) I'm not sure that that would ultimately be a good thing for the human population, unless we also at the same time are developing other um, parts of the universe to live on. Um, in whatever, um, because, you know, our earth has a carrying capacity, and if nobody dies, that's a problem. But, um, but I think that there are, you know, really, really important, um, diseases that are, are manifest as part of an aging process that have been under addressed, where we both haven't applied the kind of preventive tools that can make a difference in terms of lifelong habits that influence the aging process, but also, um, you know, better understanding some of the diseases of aging, you know, in particular neurodegenerative disease stands out, where, you know, we, I think, I hope, are poised to really apply advances in science and technology to make meaningful differences um, in the burden of of some of those diseases. it's hard to sort of define aging from a regulatory perspective and looking at clinical trials. It's it's a little bit hard to just say, well, aging is a disease because you have to have you know more clarity about endpoints if you right. want to understand interventions, and that's part of the challenge. Um, and there are some, you know, there have been many discussions about certain um, products that could potentially just slow the aging process of of cells. Um, in a in a more generic way, and so how do you assess that and how do you, um, you know, structure those clinical trials? I would like to say that FDA always tries to be open about how to address concerns that people bring um, and opportunities to make a difference that come before them. But I think one does have to always be thinking about how do we do, you know, meaningful, rigorous science so you get answers that make a difference.
0: Absolutely. Um, Peggy, looking back now to sort of the the bio, as I mentioned, you know, you started your career out um, at the NIAID working on HIV at a time when it was... A death sentence uh, here we are 2022 we've profiled uh the city of hope uh patients on the show in terms of the the stem cell uh, leukemia transplants which they call a, a complete cure uh andrew hebler from the uh uh the white house on so talking a little bit about his work in also terms from of
1: nti yep ex-
0: ex- <laughs> absolutely nti there as well uh talking about uh you know how we can eradicate uh, reservoirs um looking back to the very beginning of your career now um you know look at it t- talk a little bit about how you feel about sort of the progress we've made in hiv and in that transition from death sentence to yeah not just something that's livable but that something might be eliminated yeah. uh completely
1: well it's it's pretty remarkable i mean going back to you know sort of my early career in in medicine the emergence of HIV when I was a, a medical student, you know, transformed my career path. I had planned to be an academic physician. I was going to do research. I was going to take care of patients, um, and um, and I was going to teach. And I thought I'd do. I liked endocrinology. I thought I'd do either reproductive endocrinology or neuroendocrinology. And I did some some research in the neuroscience space. Um, and um, but then when I went, you know, to medical school, it was really, you know, was the case that the sort of dogma was that the era of infectious diseases was sort of coming to an end with the advent of um, of drugs and vaccines and advances in science and the future of medicine was gonna be much more chronic disease. And then this, you know, unexpected um, um, uh, syndrome, um, you know, a poorly understood um, uh, set of of, uh, medical challenges emerged, you know, nobody back then knew what it was, what caused it, even what to call it. Um, And then over the next couple of years, you know, we came to understand more and learned about, you know, the human immunodeficiency virus and it got a name. But there was still, when I was a medical resident in New York City, we had nothing to treat patients with except supportive care. And, yeah. you know, once uh, a patient came in and was on a respirator for pneumocystis carinii or um, a fungal disease, you know, we did not get them off the right. respirator. I mean, we lost them and um, and watching, you know, people often of my age group, my cohort, you know dying these terrible diseases and even one of our residents was lost to um hiv during that period you know it really made me change my mind and i want i felt like you know we don't have any treatments for this disease and yet you know it's it's so horrible and devastating but in addition it was creating all these other complicated problems and challenges as well you know it was you know at the intersection with social legal um uh, political, economic issues. And that was when I really thought, you know, I want to learn about health policy. Yeah. I want to learn about public health. I hadn't learned about those things in medical training or medical school. And, um, and that was when I went down to Washington and, um, and I had the great good fortune to become Tony Fauci's special assistant and then, uh, to help him lead the Institute, but, um, and work on, um, you know, how do we develop, um, therapeutic interventions um, that will make a difference against this devastating disease. And, you know, watching what has happened has been amazing. Um, So many lessons learned that stuck with me and certainly applied when I was at the FDA, going back to your earlier question about balancing risks and benefits and, um, you know, uh, trying to speed innovation to people in need. Uh, But but also, you know, I think it's right now it's a good reminder of the importance of not thinking that every serious disease threat um, of a you know an epidemic nature um is gonna have a vaccine fix. You right. know, we were lucky with COVID that it turned out, you know, to be um an infectious disease process that was quite amenable to a vaccination strategy. With with HIV, we still don't have the much sought after vaccine, and it's not for want of trying. But we do have, you know, um, medical products that are making just a transformative difference. And so I think, to, for me, you know, not only does it irritate me, I have to say when people, you know, say that the COVID nineteen pandemic is the first pandemic in our lives or our memory. Because you know HIV counts for me, um, but um but also it's a powerful reminder that we have to have diversified um, research investment strategies. Um, we have to really understand um, you know the nature of the disease, the underlying you know um, uh, biology of the disease process, but also the human impacts of the disease, yeah. what symptoms, um, you know, really matter what impacts on your ability to uh, undertake, you know, certain important aspects of, of um, you know, day-to-day life, um, uh, uh, be able to undertake those, um, and how medical interventions can help to improve the quality of life um, and reduce the burden of disease. And then also always thinking about how do you prevent disease from happening in the first place, um, and, um, and how do you prevent unnecessary spread? It also, sorry to give long answers, but- No, it's great. Me, it also, uh, HIV is a powerful reminder, you know, M- monkeypox was another one just recently, right. that if we care as a nation, speaking now as a US citizen, more about disease that's happening in other parts of the world, even if we don't see it as an immediate threat, within our borders, we will all be better off, both because, you know, I'm a humanitarian at heart um, and deeply believe in helping others if we can. But also, you know, you don't know how things are going to unfold. If we had taken more interest in, you know, the wasting syndrome that was occurring in Africa, we might have been better prepared to deal with the full-blown emergence of HIV. Mm. If we had taken some of the tools that had been developed um, that um, could be used against monkeypox, it had actually been developed because of the concern of smallpox as a yeah. bioweapons threat, that we had the smallpox vaccine and, and some of the other potential therapeutics. But if when monkeypox had been happening in Africa, you know, Nigeria, for example, has had you know some significant monkeypox challenges in recent history. If we had you know been more invested in helping them, we could have better understand the understood the appropriate use of some of these medical tools against monkeypox. And you know, we would have been much better positioned when monkeypox emerged in the United States. And we also you know, would have done a service to other people in other nations.
0: Absolutely. And for everyone listening and watching, I, I, I know you're coming, up, we're coming up against a hard stop, but, um, I, I recommend everyone check out, uh, Dr. Hamburg's, um, Lancet article from 2021 with, uh, to Secretary Shalala and others, a global health action agenda for the Biden administration, which really synthesizes a lot of this theme of international cooperation, uh, that, uh, Dr. Hamburg is talking about here. So, uh, um, Peggy. I, I once again, I um, I, I know you got a hard stop at the top of the hour. I just, I really appreciate um, you taking the time to 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 educate us on these themes. You know, you've had a fascinating journey, and I I'll continue to root you on um for everything you're doing now with the NTI, with the uh, Commission on Bio Defense, um. Any any last messages for the audience while while we have you anything hot coming up uh, that we should know about and then I'll let you get on to your next uh, set of calls
1: Well I you know I think you know reiterating the message of we need to care about health we need to care about investing now in things that matter to people's health um every day and that isn't just you know what happens in the healthcare system it's also having a strong robust well functioning well funded uh public health system and and a continuum of programs and policies that address health, you know, from the community level and population health to you know the the need for um, hospital-based and intensive uh, care and everything in between, and then the need to you know think about um, health from a global perspective. How can we um, make our understanding of some of these challenges? stronger by working together because science is a global enterprise but also how can we work together as we harness that science to make a difference in people's lives wherever they live whoever they are
0: excellent messages for everybody that's uh, going to be listening to this particular episode of the show across the various podcast networks or watching on our youtube channel again you've been listening to dr peggy hamburg chair of the Nuclear Threat Initiative Bio-Advisory Group, Commissioner of the United States Bipartisan Commission on Biodefense. Peggy, again, I want to thank you for taking the time out of your schedule to come talk to us for a little while. Obviously, thank you for everything you've been doing. And as we say on this show, thanks for helping to create a better tomorrow for others via what you're doing. Really great story.
1: Well, thank you so much. It was fun talking with you. And I'm amazed by how much you read. You, yeah. you resurrected papers. I'm I- amazed by how much
0: you write. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> Be well.